Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January the 10th, 2018. This is episode 2143 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday, that makes it interview day. I have a great guest on the line for you, Mark Hare, who is the... Uh, head and founder of the Center for Self-Governance. He's going to talk to us today about the mission of the Center for Self-Governance, how they actually train people to bring about change in our society. A recent victory involving uh, the Bundy Ranch episode, uh, a Kickstarter he's working on uh, called Dead Man Talking, and a lot of other really cool stuff. This will be a really great high-level discussion between the two of us. Uh, you'll see that we align more than we disalign, even though I guess he would be a constitutional, uh, conser- maybe conservative is the wrong word, a constitutionalist, and I'm more of an anarchist, but I think we do agree pragmatically on many things. I'll have Mark on in just a minute. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one is KnifeKits.com. You know, this used to be a, a country where when something broke, the first thing Dad did was fix it or try to fix it. And if he couldn't fix it, he called Uncle Joe. And then Uncle Joe said, have you tried this? And he tried, Or Uncle Joe said, you know who's really good at that is Andy. And they would call up, you know, their, their friend Andy, and they would and they would get it done. And, like, it was only when, like, well, Uncle Joe was like, hey, you know, really, like, if you don't know what you're doing with that shit, it could kill you, dude, that they called the guy. What does that have to do with knife kits? Well, it has to do with we have stopped learning how to do stuff. And one way you can start learning how to do stuff is hands-on projects. And making a knife is fun, it's cool, it's awesome. It can become a hobby, a small business, or even a big business in time. And the best place to get started that I know of with great pricing, selection, support, an incredible reputation, and a long-term supporter of the Survival Podcast would be KnifeKits.com. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com and see about building a knife for you and maybe for someone in your family or your friends or your neighbors. If you got kiddos, what a great father-son or father-daughter or mother-son, mother-daughter. It ain't like women don't build knives. Trust me, there's some really great female knife makers out there. Check it out today, KnifeKits.com. Knife mitts? We're going to invent something called knife mitts. That sounds kind of... It sounds kind of diabolical. I got my knife mitts on. Wow. Anyway, with that, let's talk about sponsor of the day number two today, man. Uh, Ready-made resources. This is the company that, with no influence by me whatsoever, has fulfilled what I call the Jack Spearco credo. When I used to be in consulting for marketing for companies, they would say, well, what is the best course we can take with our marketing? And I'm like, it's so simple. No one does it, but it's so simple. Do what you say and say what you do. I know it sounds crazy, but that is really the way to to win people over to giving you a shot and then keep them around after they do. That's what Ready-Made Resources does with the name of their company. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made and ready to go. Point-click buy on their website with great pricing, great service, and great selection. You can find it all at ReadyMadeResources.com and another long-term supporter of the Survival Podcast. Been with us about eight years now. ReadyMadeResources.com. If you need it for your preps, I'm promising you they got it from 12 volt stuff for your solar and wind projects to the stuff that do solar and wind, long-term stu- food storage stuff, practical, tactical guns to gardens. They got it all. You know where? ReadyMadeResources.com. And before I get Mark on the air, let's take a look at the year in history, uh, the year in 89. 
and uh, 89 AD. And from David Verne, we have at tspwiki.com, a double victory? Yeah, and I, with a question mark, a double victory? Really? Yeah, sort of, kind of, not really. Here we go. The Samaritans... An Iranian people, and yes, they are those Samaritans, isn't the Good Samaritan? The Samaritans, an Iranian people that have migrated to Germany, have taken the opportunity presented by Saturnius's revolt to raid Moesa. Domitian tried to catch them, but they withdrew across the Danube before the Romans arrived. Still confident from Julianus' success against the Dacians last year, Domitian decides to invade two Germanic tribes, the, Quadri, the Quadi and the Macromani accusing them of not doing enough to help the Romans. The Macromani pushed Domitian's army and pushed back Domitian's army and raid the Roman province of Panoia before returning home. Seeing a chance to negotiate, Debaculus, who has been preparing for a desperate defense of his capital city, sends an envoy to Domitian to discuss peace terms. After being pushed out of Macromani lands, Domitian agrees to a peace treaty recognizing Dacia as a client kingdom of Rome. However, this treaty was controversial because Domitian agreed to pay a large annual tribute and sent engineers and military advisors to, to Debaculus. Domitian celebrated a double triumph in Rome for his victories against Dacia and Macromani. Uh, the Senate was shocked, and officer corps considered the peace treaty borderline dereliction of duty. The treaty gave Rome peace, but it turned Roman taxes into Dacian swords and had Romans build walls that future Romans would die attacking. Debaculus' court uh, will become a haven for Roman deserters and barbarian enemies of Rome. My take by David Verne. The peace treaty sealed Domitian's fate. The humiliation of losing to an enemy that was all but defeated and having to pay to arm them was, much too, was too much for most of the Senate. Saturnius's revolt proved to Domitian that there were plots to kill him, and he realized he was trapped with only two options. He could protect himself through the use of spies and treason trials, but be remembered as a tyrant, or he could act like there weren't any plots and end up dead. I've heard a cornered animal is a dangerous animal, and Domitian had become cornered by his military disaster and continued hatred of the aristocracy. He chose to become more careful, lamenting, no one believes in conspiracy, conspiracies against the emperor until the emperor is dead. One thing about Domitian, he was a pretty smart guy. He wasn't a good guy, but he was a smart guy and well-read, and he knew history, including the history of dead emperors. Uh, but what strikes me with history rhyming, so Rome, the most powerful military in the world, goes to a skirmish with people they never had to fight with in the first place that were no real threat to them, get their nose bloodied by them, then turn around to another group of people who are certainly opposed to Roman interests and agrees to peace, but then gives them money and builds up their defense and contributes to them with foreign aid and military aid that will turn around and bite them in the ass later. Really? Do I have to? I'm not doing it. I'm not explaining how that relates to modern time. If if you don't understand how that relates to modern time, then every single one of your history teachers in, in, in school failed you. Failed you miserably teaching you American history. Yeah, American history. Let's say 1867 to present. You, you, you should have got an F, or your teacher should get an F if you don't understand how what I just explained to you relates to our modern times. Anyway, with that, let's get deeper into things like governance and things like making stupid decisions as an empire and how we can have more control in our own lives over the emperors, because there's many of them around here. 
And to do that, let's bring on our special guest now, Mark Ayer. He is the founder of the Center for Self-Governance, and he's here to talk to us about all of that and more. With that, hey, Mark, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Jack, this is a real honor. I'm super excited to have this conversation with you, and uh, just uh, uh, it's going to be great. Well, as a... Uh a long-time libertarian that eventually uh, went all the way off the rails to anarchism. Uh, I am big <laughs> on the topic of self-governance. I really am. Uh, but before we get into that and the work that you're doing with it, which is awesome, could we maybe uh, get the audience familiar with you? Take us back to, you know, Mark sitting in study hall in 11th grade trying to figure out how to ask a girl out next to him and try to figure out what, they do with, <laughs> what to do with his life. And, you know, what was your career path and how did it lead you to the type of work you're doing today? Yeah, so um, my, my father was uh, military during the Vietnam War. He was stationed in England. I was born in England. Uh, I was raised in South Korea, and uh, I ended up in the Air Force and retired out of Tokyo, Japan, uh, back in the mid-1990s. Um, during that time, um, uh, I, you know, political, I think political awakenings or paying attention to society and what's happening around you kind of comes in stages. And for me, it was, you know, there's – this thing happened, that thing happened. One big thing that happened to me was um, I was stationed in Tokyo, and the Kyoto Protocol was happening in 1992. President Clinton was coming in, and the whole base was there to greet him when he comes out. You know, it was a patriotic, you know, hey, I'm, I'm you know, wow, this is kind of cool. And I'm standing there, and the president never got off the plane. <laughs> and what he had done is he had sent the fake Air Force One to our base. And it was such – it was like – I don't know how to explain it other than it felt like – when, it, when a balloon kind of loses its helium and you let it kind of like, you know, out yeah. of the, a balloon. And that's kind of, there's 3,000 people standing there and it was just like that. And that was kind of a political awakening for me going, what just happened? I, I was happy. I was excited. I felt patriotic. It's my country, the president, I'm serving the military, all these things. And, and then, you know what I mean? And so it kind of let it all out right there that day. And then for me, it's just been this ride. Um, in 2000, 2001, we had 9/11. Uh, that was kind of a shock. And then watching the uh, how how we we went to Iraq and the reasons we went to Iraq, and 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 then CNN puts a video of the Al Qaeda guy shooting um, this army soldier in the head, uh, and I was like, and their headquarters are in Atlanta, Georgia, and and and, and then watching the, the presidential elections, uh, 2008, uh, we did this huge stimulus bill. $787 billion stimulus bill to bail out you know, these big, huge corporations that were going to fail. But, but I started doing research, and I, and I found the very same Congress and the very same presidential office, they're the ones that made the decision that caused the failure. They caused the failure, they take your money, and then they're going <laughs> to fix the failure. I'm like, what in the world is that? And so I started meeting with some folks, doing research, and we had this big, huge, uh, uh, you know, tea party thing, April fifteenth, two thousand nine. I didn't know anything about tea parties. I didn't know what we were, you know, according to media, we were all racist and all that. I didn't know that at the time. Gotcha. And I met with these folks because I was like, this is ridiculous. Because then President Obama made the exact same decision as <laughs> Republican President George Bush did in October of two thousand eight. I'm like, are they the same? They, they, they're both wearing blue and red jerseys. You're watching the football field, and they're both on opposite sides, but you go downstairs in the locker room, and they're all hanging out together drinking beer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sharing each other's strategy and plays. And I, like, I think you're about my age. Going on? I think you're about my age. It's the WWF. 
Right? Yes. It's the w- You remember Macho Man Savage and Hulk Hogan fighting each other? <laughs> yes. And then they got busted speeding in Hogan's vet while smoking dope. Right? I mean, that, that's, that is the complete... I'm sorry, it was Iron Sheik. The Iron Sheik and Hogan got busted smoking dope in Hogan's vet doing about 130 miles an hour down I-95. <laughs> and that is, that is the perfect metaphor for modern politics. It really is. It so is. They, I, they're like they're in bed together. They're doing all this stuff. I, I got in, I got involved at that point heavily in trying to figure out okay what's going on my my country my per, my paradigms my perceptions are all starting to fall apart here and I, I don't I don't want it to come crashing down around me. I want to be a part of the solution to make sure that some reality comes back. You know some normalcy, some stability, some balance in in my life and for my family and my child. Uh, our future, our economics, you know, all of those things. We we all just want some stability in our lives, and we're all trying to figure out, you know, how do we get along together on this earth? And and that's kind of the beginning of my journey, Jack, and um, and it's just, it's been epic. I, all I can tell you is, like for you, right, with the, the, the survival pie, it's just epic. Uh, and, and for me, this journey has been epic, and, and here we are today. Yeah, absolutely. I think... Uh... Probably because I stayed in the military less than you did. My my journey might have started a little <laughs> sooner. I was I ran for political office in the late '90s, early 2000s as a libertarian in Texas, and right. uh, actually had my reputation just attacked. I was reported for illegal fundraising, even though I didn't do any fundraising. Uh, I, I can't make that up. And it was all be it was over an $800 a month position, uh, Texas House position. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it was because I pulled like 18% in a district where, uh, the Democrat running against the Republican had never pulled as high as 18% ever. So like, as soon as I got on the board, they started, they, they looked through all the paperwork and said, well, this guy didn't report any fundraising. Well, I, I was a libertarian, like I'm here candidate where you don't have to do that. But once they report you, then there's a hearing. And I was you know, I, I really don't think I like politics anymore, and uh, <laughs> it, 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 I had to find a different way, and it was a big part of what led to us launching the show by 2008. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, been a, it's been a great walk. Now, in your walk, you eventually uh, came to found something called the Center for Self-Governance. How, yeah. did, that, like, how did that come about? What, what transcended from, like, because I, I know what happens when you get active. You follow... Yeah the path that you think is the path. And right, you either exactly. stay deluded by that path and you think, oh, I'm doing something, or you're like, wait a minute. And then you have to, so what was that pivot point where you said, I've got to take a different path than voting or running for office or putting signs in my front yard or calling my Congress clown or whatever it was? The, the, the epic moment for me was, when I was sitting on August 11th, 2011, I got called by the Speaker of the House of the State of Tennessee. It felt like I was being called in by the principal. You know what I mean? <laughs> I've been doing something for the last year and a half, testing out, you know, how can I influence the direction of my country? How can I be a part of destiny? Uh, how can I be a part of something positive and in, in, in society, and not and not promote chaos and more oppression? You know what I mean? And so. That day, August 11, 2011, I got called into the principal's office. In this case, it's the Speaker of the House of Tennessee, and it's her whole leadership team and, and, and the chairman of the health care committee. And they're all sitting there, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking at them, and in my head I'm going, what am I doing here? You know. And they came out and they said, Mark, we can't give you what you want, but we'll give you whatever you want. And I was like, what? 
I was like, what? You, what? And so they threw out this carrot. And I realized at that moment, as a single human being, even though I didn't have the credibility of a lobbyist or a representative or a, a billionaire or a corporatist or any of that stuff, as a, just a simple human being, I realized at that moment, I, I'm a human being and I can affect the destiny of the world if I choose to. I can, I can be a part. I, can, I, I have a part to play. And I literally was in the driver's seat. I, and I, 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 I'm not a paid lobbyist. I had a lobbyist following me around, Jack, during that whole course of, of my, my journey up to that day, asking me, so what lobby firm are you with? Because I was having so much impact and effect. And I, I literally told them, I'm, I'm with her and son, myself and my son. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not paid to be here. I'm giving up my own time. But it was that moment, Jack, I realized I can change the destiny of uh, 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 things with my words, with my actions. They're powerful. Like you are with, with your podcast. You, you, you change the way people think and the way, and the way they're paradigms. And, and, and I think in the 21st century, we're there. We've got this opportunity to really have an impact on the way the world functions in the realm of self-governance. And that day, um, I met I met a, a lady named Michelle Perkins. Uh, her doctor, her husband, was affected by Obamacare and all these things. And we ended up forming the Center for Self-Governance that day, just in words, on a napkin. Uh, kind of like how it all happens, right? <laughs> Uh, and 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 the the whole question, the whole the whole thing we wanted to ask was: is is it possible to empower human beings to 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 not only uh, empower themselves and to 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 grow and 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 discover for themselves innovation creation, but can they take those innovations and creations apart from all of the bureaucracy and things that have been thrown at us that makes it impossible? It seems like which is not true. It's not impossible. They're facades. It's like the Wizard of Oz, you know. It's, it's possible for us to change not only our own destiny, but we can influence and empower the destiny of a lot of enslaved people around us who think that it's impossible um, to impact the destiny of our country, of this world. And, and so we formed Center for Self-Governance uh, out of that day as I'm sitting there with, with those... <laughs> those bureaucrats, those politicians, those lawmakers, all surrounding me in this one room. And I thought to myself at that very moment, wow, I, I'm in the driver's seat, and how did, and how did I get there? Can we repeat this? And, and we've discovered, Jack, it's possible. It's, it's possible for, for a single human being to be self-governing and influence and impact the destiny of the world. I'll tell you why I believe that, and it, it actually sounds like a pretty shitty story, and it, it kind of <laughs> is for me, but it shows me the kind of people, especially at like the state legislature level that are in these positions, and I want to be clear, I don't mean everybody, I mean most is in all, but anyway, just most. Um, so I, I mentioned I had run as a libertarian, and um, we were, I had several different companies over the years, and we had one kind of a conglomerate company that helped several others. We had one of the best lawyers in the Dallas-Fort Worth area on retainer, and he would always be at our functions and things like that. And I was talking to our CFO, and I was she was asking me about, you know, you should run for office. I'm like, oh, hell no, I, I did that already. <laughs> so I told her what I told you about running as a libertarian, and this guy Jeff overhears me. And he goes, he walks up to me, and this was like the creepiest feeling thing. And he's a big guy, so it makes it, I'm like six foot. This guy's like six, six, you know. And he well, walks up to yeah, me, right. and, he, 
puts his hand on my shoulder. And I get the feeling, like, remember the old movie, Oh God, where it's, it's instead of the good George Burns, it's the devil George Burns, right? <laughs> yeah, and he, he exactly. just leans into me and he goes, that's because you ran as a libertarian. If you want that seat as a Republican, I can make it happen. Wow. And I realize wow. he's not bullshitting. He's no, not no, no. bullshit. They're They're no, totally he's like I, he's like I know the girl in your district. She, she, we kind of put her in there because that we, we needed to re- the guy that had been there before her screwed up really bad. He backed the state right. income tax as a Republican. Like he had to go. She was there. We stuck her in. We're not really happy with her. You want that position? It's yours. Wow. And I was like, like going to put you in there with the king. Right. I felt like there was boogers on my arms or something. And I'm like, okay, no, I'm not really about that. But what it made me realize right then is a lot of those people in those positions were installed like that. Yes. And those are people you can manipulate. Yes, and that's the key here is the money is one thing, the the billions of dollars, but it's the influence, the influence peddlers who they create the lobby firms outside of the things. They create the campaign consulting firms outside of the legislative policymaking process. And the rest of us are excluded from exercising our influence. And we have it. And that's the thing. Once you, if you learn the system, and in and, and, and every human relationship there's a system uh, uh, that, that comes into being as soon as we come into contact with each other. I, I came into your system today, right, the time you're going to call with the recording and all this stuff. I, I, and I have to choose, you know, am I going to be subject to that or not? But the key here is human history demonstrates that influence is one of the most powerful human activities we exercise. And if I control all the influence as a king, let's say, then I have a vested interest in maintaining that influence. And, and so that's why the lobby firms, the consultants around the country – are so bent on ensuring that they get the right puppet into the state legislature. And our system of government wasn't designed to function that way. And, and when it is functioning correctly, <laughs> uh, you and I and your listeners and the average person have, as single human beings, we have not only the right, <laughs> we have the ability uh, to exercise influence to change the destiny of the world. And, and that's a very, very powerful thing, and it's, it's, a very, it's almost like oil reserves. It's untapped. <laughs> I, mean, I can't wait. I'm so excited for, for what's happening around the country in 2018 right now. I'm just so excited what's happening un- underneath the surface of what we see on the mainstream media. Uh, the, the average citizen is starting to wake up and realize it's kind of like the Matrix. It's like the Matrix, right? There's all these people stuck in there with the plugs on there, and people are starting to wake up and, and, and realize they have more influence than they, than they ever knew before. So since you are the founder of the Center for Self-Governance, can you explain what you mean by self-governance? So when, 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 I, when I think of self-governance, um, I, see two, I see two parts. One is there's my individual freedom. My freedom that's unrestricted. I do what I want when I want. And matter of fact, I, I tell my wife this all the time. I say, Pam, if, if you weren't here in my country, there would not be no crime because I, I would never commit one. <laughs> okay? And she just laughs at me. But, it, but then the other part of self-governance, and this is the other half of the equation in, 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 in my belief, 
And that is, as soon as you come into contact with another human being, uh, govern, governance takes over. And so my beliefs, your beliefs, your words, my words, we, we come into contact with each other and something starts to grow. <clears throat> something starts to happen, either chaos or oppression. Uh, we argue chaos, right? Or we argue or, or we, we disagree so we separate. Or I try to control your thinking, you try to control my thinking, oppression. And, and that happens at the basic to human level. Now, when you get to society, that thing goes crazy. It just goes absolutely bonkers. So there's another side to self-governance, which is what is the human relationship between us when we come into contact and not just my unrestricted freedom when I'm alone. And when those two pieces come together, self-governance begins to, to function. And I, I have, like you're allowing me to speak right now, <laughs> uh, and, 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 and so grateful for that opportunity. Words are extremely powerful. They're the most powerful. They're, to me, more valuable than, than money. And, and, and so when I'm a lobbyist or, or a bureaucrat or a politician or a media personality or a professor, and I'm using words to try to manipulate the destiny of the country, self-governance gets eliminated from the equation in society. The, the, when the two humans come together. So I'll give you an example of this. When a Democrat and a Republican come into contact with each other, and the first thing they say is, are you Democrat or are you Republican? Self-governance immediately gets, uh, on the society side of the equation, immediately gets destroyed. Because now all I can see in my mind is, ooh, you're a nasty Republican fascist, right? Yeah. Or the yeah. Republican sees, you're just a communist you know, bastard from the pit of hell, <laughs> right? And so... So immediately self-governance gets quashed between those two human beings. And I don't mean the individual side of self-governance, the social side of self-governance. That mind-forged manacle is what I hope to be able to break through, uh, in my, in, at least during my lifetime uh, for the 21st century. I'd like to contribute to breaking through that mind-forged manacle, and so social self-governance, maybe that's the right terminology, individual self-governance, unrestricted freedom, and social self-governance, where together you and I add more synergy and value to society because of our volunteer relationship, our shared, uh, our shared value of the meaning of words, and the results that come out of it. We, we, there's so much potential I don't even know how to describe it, and I, I can't even – I think it's theoretical, Jack. <laughs> the, uh, my theory is that the potential is, is astronomical if we could exercise social self-governance um, in addition to our individual self-governance. So that's, that's what CSG is focused on, is how can we build social self-governance outside of the confines of what typically happens with – monarchs, oligarchs, etc. Interesting, because, I mean, the way I feel is that the, the mantra of the statist, the true statist, is you need us to govern you. And <laughs> I'm not going to say that there is no advantage to a government, even as an anarchist. I'm not going to say that, because it's, 
it's 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 a stupid argument. There's advantages to every system and disadvantages to every system. Right. And there are certain things like fear of being thrown into a prison that do modify behavior. But if people had no capacity for self-governance, you could not have a structured and organized society no matter how much statism you applied to it. It's it's amazing. Eventually right. every society, every society uh, it, so it starts out with minimal oppression give up a little bit of your security and uh, and then you know while someone's watching for the beast that's going to come eat you so we'll give up a little bit of security so i can sleep at night and we'll have the guy patrol around us but eventually that little bit of security it grows into more oppression and eventually like with democracies about 150 years eventually revolution comes into into par because the chaos that develops out of that eventually result in more oppression. And so then people rely on longer systems like monarchies, and they're willing to give up, they're willing to suffer some tyrannical oppression uh, in exchange for less chaos. And so the, this is, I think you're, you're hitting on something that's very, very fundamental, and that is human nature. We are constantly seeking for equilibrium, stability, harmony, etc. And what does that look like and how do we get it? The social systems from world history, all of them have collapsed, whether democracies collapsed really quick or monarchies, whether they're totalitarian or benevolent, collapse you know, 500 years later. They all have this collapse system uh, or, or collapsing nature attached to their system. And I think in our country, at least, when we were founded in the 18th century, despite slavery and women and voting and those things, I think... They genuinely were trying to figure out how can we build a new system that produces additional stability and eliminates some of the turbulence of chaos and oppression. Yeah, and I mean the simplistic view of this is to me, whenever people say that is, so you think that, that just everybody would be out murdering puppies with kittens if, <laughs> if we didn't have an oppressive state. So if that were true, there's only a couple thousand police officers in the city of Dallas, for instance. Um, I think it's like 2,600 or something like that. There are something in the neighborhood of 1.9 million people in Dallas proper. If those people were as horrible as we're led to believe in the need for such level of state oversight, those 2,600 officers would all be dead. By, yeah, by they, number. They, they by numbers. Within a month. Yeah. By numbers alone, right? Yeah. If, if they had machine guns and these evil people had rocks, they would all be dead, right? <laughs> so there has to be a certain innate desire within humanity to not cause trouble for other people. Now, there are people that make you question that. And, <laughs> and I, you know, as a, as a pragmatic anarchist, I am the point or the, 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 the viewpoint that we're not quite ready for what I want yet. But we should be moving in that direction. It should be as little involvement from authority as possible. But we do have that capacity, or our society could not function. Like, the reason that the guy walking next to you doesn't punch you in the head and steal your shit when you're walking past him in the mall isn't just because he's afraid he's going to get arrested. It's the Okay, let's look at it. You find the guy that will do it, and he punches you in the head, grabs your wallet, pushes you to the ground, and goes to take off. How many people who are not police officers would grab the guy, hold him down, and try to get your property back for you? What, I mean, make, and, and what makes them a, do that? The state doesn't make them do that. 
That's exactly right. Now, you can train people, like in an oppressive society like North Korea, you can train the North Koreans to not react yes. because they've been trained that the only authority that is authorized to react is the North Korean police state. But in our society, I, I have to tell you, I think we're headed toward a North Korean type of culture. However, you will see, you will hear stories that, uh, that won't get a lot of attention in the media, that for sure, of, of exactly what you described. Like, like, for example, the one in Texas where, where the two men, the, 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 the shooter went into the church and shot a lot of those people. And then you had the t one guy runs out, they jump in a car, and they chase this guy down, and he crashes. And I think that's exactly what you're describing. Our culture had that built into it, but I think with an oppressive, statist type of structure that is like a weed. I think it's growing into our structure. It's kind of overtaking the structure we have that allows for that type of culture that you're describing. Uh, it still exists in our society, and I think that's why so many people are, are really curious to see what happens to the United States because – because that we're one of the we're one of the only cultures where uh, that that still happens on a regular basis, uh, uh, at least at least from that perspective. So, why do you think most citizens think their involvement in government is limited to voting? Because I mean, I've put out articles where I'm like, I'm not voting this year, and you would have think I did take an infant child and beat a puppy to death with it, the way I was attacked for it. And I laid out a mathematical case like, okay, I know it might matter where, you, where I live. Yeah. The, the, mathematically, my odds of influencing anything are lower than my odds of dying in my car on the way to vote. And that's math, and you can't argue that. And it seems to me there's so much better ways than voting to influence things. And I, I know that may not be a popular opinion, but... Again, I'm down to mathematics, right? Like when you live in districts where even your local stuff's decided three to one, always you not showing up is not going to change anything. But there are other things you can do. But why? Why do people not understand that? Because most most of our fellow citizens have been trained to think that government is a beast. It's an animal. It's 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 a dragon that's going to eat them and breathe fire on them and kill them. And so they live in fear of the beast. Well, the founders of the United States, and it was a woman who made this discovery, Abigail Adams, in, on May 7, 1776. She wrote her husband, John Adams, who was on the committee to write the Declaration of Independence. She wrote him a letter in which she said, a government of more stability is much wanted among the colonies, and they are ready to receive it from the hands of Congress. And this, this paradigm that government is an it uh, really transformed uh, the destiny of the world. And, and, and after 60 changes to the Declaration, um, th that's the one change that was not made uh, to the Declaration. Government was cast for the first time in world history as an object, a system, like an airplane. So I want to use an airplane to help answer this question. In an airplane, you basically have three things going on. You've got the pilot, you've got the passengers, and you have the maintenance crew. And, of course, you've got the other things, stewardess gates and all that stuff. But I just want to use the pilot, the maintenance crew, and the passengers. In a democracy, there is no maintenance crew. There's just the passengers choosing the pilot to turn the plane left or right, up or down. Crash the plane, land the plane, go up higher, turn it left, turn it right. So everybody takes a vote. Let's vote for the pilot, like President Trump, the pilot, right? <laughs> He's going to turn the plane left or right or whatever direction. Uh, your city council, your state legislators, when you show up to vote – 
you're in the plane. Think about this. You're in the plane 365 days per year. We'll call the plane the United States of America or the state of Texas, whatever. And every once in a while, you wake up from your sleep or from your video or you went to the bathroom or you, you ring the bell and you ask the stewardess for, you know, lower my property taxes or something, okay? Every once in a while, 365 days, one day out of the year, you show up to vote for the pilot. Now, I want your listeners to really think about that metaphor for just a second. Is that our system of government in the United States? You're a, plane, you're a passenger on the plane. You don't get involved in politics. You just want the plane to go from point A to point B because you don't want any turbulence. You don't want it to crash. You just want a happy life until the day you land. And every once in a while, you show up to vote, and the rest of the passengers don't show up to vote, right? The kids, the felons, the whatever, people who don't care about politics, they don't, they're, they just, they're not participating. And you have this very small minority once a year who picks the pilot. Now, if I control the narrative of which pilot we should select. Now, remember your story at the beginning, Jack, where you said, that guy said, we'll get you in. I'll get you in. As long yeah. as you run as an R, not as an L. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay. If our system of, is, if our plane is a democracy, how soon do you think it will crash? It will crash. Immediately. Immediately. <laughs> immediately. Because all I can think of when you're talking with this analogy is something like, why healthcare doesn't work? Well, because you're trying to make a health insurance product that's cheaper, that people want to be cheaper than auto insurance, but it pays for your oil changes. Exactly. Right? So since we all voted for it, I don't understand why we can't have it. So you're exactly. ignorant of the you're ignorant of the functioning of the aircraft, but you get to make the decisions about what the pilot's supposed to do. That's exactly. democracy. That that is totally democracy, and so. <laughs> continue with this metaphor really quick to describe the difference when people get upset at you about not voting, okay? Voting is simply selecting the pilot to turn the plane left or right. Now, the question we still haven't come to is, who's fixing the plane? <laughs> who's, who's the mechanic? Who is responsible for the system? And this is all based on the analogy, is government a beast or an object, like a refrigerator or a plane, a car, you know, etc.? If government is a beast, I, there's nothing for me to fix. I either train it, I kill it, or, or I fear it. <laughs> but if it's a plane, it's an object, metaphorically speaking, there's lots more for you to do as a human being than just vote. There's so much more. There's, there's, and I don't, I don't think we have enough time today to go through it all, but there's so much more. And, and I can refer back to my list, tiny little experience on August 11, 2011 having that epiphany uh, when I'm sitting there in front of all those human beings who had all of this authority and I was in the control seat and not a paid lobbyist, not a corporatist, none of those things. And, and I, I just, it blew, it blew my mind. And, and that's the purpose of our training program is to teach people, number one, in level one, is to have this paradigm shift. Is government an object or a beast to you? Because that will influence the destiny of your human life personally. If we can help you change the way you see that, it's an, it's an object. Then in level two, we can introduce you to the object. I can introduce you to the telecommunication system. I can introduce you to the airplane or to the car, to the refrigerator, and you can fix it yourself. And that is the epitome of self-governance. Um, and so by level three, four, and five, which are advanced or, or upper-level classes, we're teaching strategy and tactics. Uh, 
not so much how to get elected or how to win your issue, but how to stabilize the system, how to stabilize, how to, um, like, like Abigail Adams, a government of more stability is much wanted. And that's really what it comes down to, Jack. Each of us are just looking for equilibrium, balance, stability. Gotcha, man. So with that in mind, what is actual political power? Because I think a lot of people don't understand what that even means. It's, it's another one of those it things, right? So, yes, it is. So, so it's interesting, right? Because um, the, the Constitution of Texas, for example, um, you guys came, came, came into our, our country or into the United States back in the uh, mid-19th century. And so coming into the country, that is based on the concept that government's an object. Every object has power. My refrigerator has to use a certain type of power, you know, airplanes, uh, in your cell phones. They each require certain types of power. Well, our government is ran off of a power called political power. And so it's written right there in the Texas Constitution. All political power originates or is located, is inherent in the people. So in our organization, we really study this matter of, okay, if government's a system, then what is the power source? And, and it's mentioned in all the state constitutions, including the U.S. Con- – well, not the U.S. Constitution, but including the Declaration of Independence. The, the power is located in each human being. And the name that it was given, right, like uh, electrical power, horsepower, you know, et cetera, is called political power. Politics – in its definition, simply means social relations, Jack, Jack and Mark, <laughs> involve using words, which is what we're doing, with strategy. Strategy, strategy, the ability to think about how I structure my words in order to, in order to have influence or to change the direction or to, to improve something. So it's social relations with words involving strategy to gain control. <clears throat> and that political power is located in each of us as individual human beings. And that's why all the state constitutions use that, stru- that language. All political power is inherent in the people. Okay, so why then do you feel, because I know from reading your notes, it's a mistake to think about government as us against them? Okay, and this is a very important part of the part of the puzzle. Is government a human being, or is government a thing that happens between Jack and Mark? Is it something that happens between you and your spouse, or your, your you and your children, or you and your neighbor? Is government is government they in Washington D.C., or is government happening right now on the phone, right right as your listeners are listening to the words? Is that when government happens? Or is government a they? Is government that FBI agent? Is government that BLM agent? Is, is government Attorney General Sessions? Or is Attorney General Sessions one of the pilots of the plane? If that makes any sense. Is President Trump the government of the United States? Or is President Trump a pilot in the thing called government? And he has one specific type of control, and he's limited to that cockpit of control. And when he goes beyond the boundaries of that cockpit, the maintenance crew <laughs> has a responsibility in relationship to uh, the exercise or the violation of those boundaries. 
uh, or the transformation. There's so much to say in relationship to this. So let me let me try to simplify it. And I, my, my natural tendency is to really want to to teach. So forgive me. Um, is government an it or is government they? That's the bottom line. If government is an object, then that separates the government from the governing. And when you make the governing a human being, that instead of a god like Pharaoh or, or a legend like Hercules, when, when government is separate and distinct as an object from the governing, President Trump, Attorney General Sessions, that law enforcement officer, and you, in your mind they become a human being separate and equal to you, then you now have the opportunity, you have at least the opportunity or the potential to insert balance and to reduce turbulence in social self-governance. And that's why it's important, that's so important uh, in, in, in CSG that is, <laughs> that government be seen by our trainees or students as an it and not a they. And I, but see, what I would add to that is kind of the lesson of the gun. So if you and I meet each other somewhere where there's no one else to influence us, and we're about the same age, about the same strength, about the same size, about the same experience, then we are very much equals. If I have a gun, or if you have a gun, and... We're not in a situation where, like, I can do something to get the gun from you. You're 20 feet away from me with it, with it aimed right at the center of my chest, and I have no place to take cover, and I can't breach the distance in time. All of a sudden, the thing, the entity, the gun, that is in the hand of an equal gives that who is an equal power over that who is not an equal. And the state itself, in my vision, is a gun. And it's actually a much more complex weapon than a gun that has the ability to damage, destroy, and ruin lives on so many more levels oh, through the yes. force of a gun, right? Yes. So, yes, we can influence those people. Yes, we can change things. But we have, to me, the entity, the it, the state, the level of power that exists is far more the problem than the people inside that vehicle because that vehicle is so powerful with so many tentacles that reaches into so many lives that, like, it's time to start lopping te tentacles off. <laughs> right? I mean, and there might be the governing, and in the language I, I would use to, 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 to agree with you is the governing have modified the system over oh, yeah. the last 150 <laughs> years, and it's a lot to do with maintenance neglect starting in the 1890s, and I won't go into all those details, but it, 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 the transformation of our system that allowed us to be a social self-governing and individually self-governing society has been modified because of this philosophy that the average person, the average listener, that we are not smart enough, that we're not capable enough, that we're not intelligent enough, and that there's others who have the greater good best interest of society and future generations in mind than people like Jack Spurko or Mark Kerr. And that's just not the case. And I think we have a fundamental disagreement with those governing. Unfortunately, they're dead and we can't debate them. But, <laughs> but the circumstances of the 21st century have put an amazing opportunity into all of our hands that we can 
we can stand on the shoulders of every human being who's come before us and look into the future and say, we can grow individual self-governance and we can grow social self-governance at greater yields uh, than any other farming or agricultural solution has ever come up with, like with potatoes or something. We can do it in greater quantities. And at least for me, that's theoretical, but the evidence is there. The evidence is there for it. Um, I'll give you one example. So Idaho, um, we have a group, a, a group of six people in Canyon County, Idaho, who um, they've graduated our training program, and they've, they've been applying this to their daily life in the realm of social self-governance. And our system, basically, bottom line is this, it changed the outcome. It changed the destiny of what happened to a group of, of people who stood up, uh, ranchers and non-ranchers who stood up back in 2014 in a, in a case that happened in Nevada, and they stood up and they, they got to jail, they're imprisoned, and it's just amazing how much is tragic stuff that happened. These six individuals quietly changed the destiny and the outcome of what happened to those men. Um, and and, and the, result, uh, the result was on January 8th of, of this year, just two days ago. And, and, and so it's epic to watch how individuals quietly exercising social self-governance or their, or their civic authority or whatever you want to call it could influence the destiny of, of our social structure. The Attorney General Session be, uh, became involved in the case. Uh, the gentleman running for governor in their state became involved in the case. The state legislature of Idaho, for the first time in U.S. history, actually wrote a letter to influence uh, the Attorney General. That, that letter never made it to him. There's so many. It needs to be on. A, it needs to be in a documentary. Is what needs to happen. But it's. It, it, it is possible. It is. It, we have the capacity as human beings, not only to be individually self-governing, um, but we have the we have the capacity to make sure that our social structure um, does not become oppressive, uh, as it has here in the, in, in 2017, 2018. So. Let's look a little bit at the spectrum of governance and where different forms uh, sit. You've talked about democracy. You know, we have anarchy. We have monarchy. You mentioned we have oligarchy. We have republics. There's there are, instead of going with the left-right paradigm on the spectrum, where do these systems? Because the the gun is the thing, or the plane is the thing, so to say. Right. Um, so there 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 is a whole series of of systems of government um, that that pit that have been used to to pit the governing versus the governed um, throughout world history and and they have a um, a cycle to them and so it's it's less it's 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 hard to it's hard to draw it and so it's more like a, a cycle or a circle um, so oppression tends to grow out of systems like monarchy, oligarchies, aristocracies, autocracies, etc. And chaos tends to grow out of democracies, oclocracies, anarchy, etc. Those are the tendencies throughout world history. And so they, 
the one system that they, they, they threw out, like Plato's Republic in the 300 B.C. time frame, his actual system was more oligarchic and, in, and even eventually resulted in monarchy um, in his theory. In his theory. Um, Aristotle, uh, who was his student, pushed for something called, uh, basically it looks like an airplane, monarchy, first class, and then economy class, right, if, if, since I'm using the airplane model. But his theory was that any ethical, any ethical citizen has the right to participate. And this is the critical piece when it comes to governance. Who has the right? Who has the authority? Who, who is allowed to participate in the things of society, in the direction of society, in the, in the future, in the future things? And, and Plato and Aristotle actually divided from each other because Plato believed only the philosopher king should participate in deciding what direction societies should go. Aristotle, however, actually threw out this concept that the ethical citizen should participate in society. And so you have this tug of war now over, okay, whatever system of government we're going to make, which system is going to allow for what kind of participation? Is Jack allowed to participate? Is the average North Korean allowed to participate? How about the Iranians, the Saudi Arabian women, compared to Sophie, the artificial intelligence female, who was just given citizenship a few weeks ago, right? So the women, the, the physical women of Saudi Arabia versus the artificial woman called Sophie, a robot in, 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 in Saudi Arabia who now has citizenship. Who has the authority to participate in the, the, the underlying and even the overlying direction of society? And that's where these systems of government come into conflict with each other, Right. For anarchy, everybody, all of us. For monarchy, just the one. And it ultimately comes down to what is the balance in society at the social self-governance level? Where's the balance in participation? Um, for example, like right now, if you start talking and I'm talking at the same time, we, we just can't, we just, your listeners won't be able to understand the thing, right? So we, we share, you and I are sharing control it's balanced. Uh, and of course, I've got to learn for myself. Personally, I have to learn when to shut up. <laughs> because uh, our passion takes over, we overload people. But there's a point, in my learning at least, where shared control, shared, how do we say it? We, we share the time, we share the resources, we share the innovations, we share. And that's just a difficult thing for human beings to do. And I, I think that played out with Aristotle and, 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 and uh, Plato. And it's still playing out here in the 21st century. We, we as adults, we have a harder time sharing control than children do over toys. Oh, I would, I would definitely agree with that. I think, though, that there's a lot of this governance that we have been conditioned to believe that we need a state for that is not just self-governing, but self-regulating and not as an individual is a thing. And what I mean by that, your example with, you know, I'm letting you talk and then I respond and you listen to me and then you respond. <laughs> if we didn't do that, right, we could sit here and yell at each other on the phone all day. <laughs> and, and do you know how many of my, right, do, do you know how many of my 150,000 listeners would tune in tomorrow if I did that every day? It was, it was so the system, right, so I want to accomplish, I, I have a goal, 
and that is to, to change hearts and minds and educate, entertain, and make a living. Yeah. You have a goal that's quite similar, yes. and that goal in your life becomes highly regulatory of your actions because as an intelligent, sentient being, you realize if I want A and I go do B, I will get my ass kicked in door C and I won't get A. Right. So right, that's and that is part of the importance of this this form of government we were given that was to be a republic. Right. That it requires an educated society to function. And the less educated that society becomes, and that doesn't mean get good scores on standardized tests. Right. The less <laughs> exactly educated right. that, that society. Not to do with school. Right. Yeah, but the exactly. less educated that society becomes the more it will be enslaved under the banner of a republic, the more you move toward galactic empire, so to say. Well, you know, and that's, that's an important part here, because when the, when, the, when, the, when the people were creating our country's system of government, at their time frame, under their technology and their understanding of the world, etc., they would look back on world history because they realized they had this unique opportunity in the 18th century to come up with a new form of government. And they really struggled in the summer of 1787 to identify, to identify that. Um, they started out with representative democracy in the Virginia Resolution, the early part of May and June. And they rejected that wholeheartedly. It, 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 it created so much chaos, it nearly divided them and, 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 and collapsed the Constitutional Convention. And so they, they began to discuss between the larger and the small states, the majority and the minorities, where's the balance here? Where do we find balance in the structure? And so they researched different structures, aristocracies, plutocracies, autocracies, meritocracies, I mean, all the ocracies, right? And very interesting thing, and it's a book that I would recommend your, your listeners, if they're, if, they, if they're interested in social structures and and trying to kind of understand the struggle that, like you and I, you, I can tell, Jack, you and I are on the same sheet of music. We're trying to figure out how do we, how do we create social self-governance. That's the bottom line, I think. In this case, John Adams was ambassador to England on behalf of the Articles of Confederation government, okay? And that's the government between the government we have today and the English government we were subject to during the Revolution, they created this Articles of Confederation, much like the European Union is today, the, the member, member countries, independent nation states. They created that, and it immediately went into chaos. And there's many reasons behind it. But John Adams wrote this book. It's a three-volume book. And um, I'm walking over to my library right now. I'm going to grab a copy of it here. It's, it's just it's, it's a fascinating book in terms of the history of government. And he lays it out in, in really good form, and he argues for a, a certain system of government. And the title is called A Defense of the Constitutions of Government of the United States of America. It's a really, really long title because those guys didn't know how to make simple, you know, 140, you know, well, you, character tweets. <laughs> you weren't marketing on the Internet back in those days, right? They were not. They were not. Yeah, yeah. right. And nobody told him, says, hey, John, you might want to cut this down to like a sentence, or, you know, instead yeah. of a paragraph. Anyway, if you Google a defense of and put in John Adams, you can find this book. And I recommend it. It's three volumes. Um, and he literally goes through democracies, aristocracies, 
Um, and he, he argues for a Republican form of government, and he, and he goes through and he justifies it. He, he, he argues why. And the main reason is because executive power, who gets to execute the policies made by the legislative, the law, the rule, who gets to execute? And he argues very succinctly, and he shows it through history in these three volumes, that the boundary between executing the law and making the law is the number one target of the tyrant. And, of course, for them it was real, right, with the monarch, King George, and then it was Congress, Parliament, right, making the Townsend Act, the Stamp Act. And they were oppressed. And he was totally – got to understand, John Adams was very much for not separating from England until 1776 – well, actually, 1775, uh, when the British started marching across the, the colonies and then the, 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 the Lexington to Concord battles, okay? Um, that's when things changed for him. Anyway, this book is the most referenced book in the Constitutional Convention of the United States in 1787. And it gives a very good history uh, of, of, of human government. And he gives a good articulation as to why he wanted them, when they came to convention, to use Republican structure. Now, very important, his version of Republic matched Aristotle's the book called Politics. One pilot, monarch, first class is aristocracy, and then the economy class, democracy. He believed in the one few many structure of society. Now, the founders of the United States, they rejected the one few many because during the convention, they were, they were arguing for a monarchical system of government or, or a monarchical republic is what they were leaning towards. And, and there's so much. There's so much. Okay. So they, they eventually rejected that hands down, and I'll make it simple. It's because are you seriously going to replace England's King George with another King George Washington? And that was the sure. kind of the argument. Are you seriously going to do that? Are we really going to go that? And so everyone kind of realized the absurdity of that, you know. And so they rejected the monarchical version of, of John Adams' monarchy republic, okay. But they took the structure of republic from – they realized that there are boundaries. Like, you know, you lock your door. You, you, you have a gun, um, there's the three-foot rule. Don't get in my space. Uh, rape, for example. Um, there, there are ba- we have boundaries. Don't touch my bank account. There, there's visible boundaries. There's invisible boundaries. So they, they, in Republic, there were boundaries, like in the Roman Republic, there were boundaries put in place between the Senate and the, the Triumvirate or the Tribunes or the Caesars, for example. And they were always struggling to expand those boundaries. And that's the concept they took from John Adams, this matter of do, how do we prevent the expansion of oppression or the, ex, or the expansion of the control boundary, where, where President Obama takes more control than he was given, or, or, or anybody, or anybody for that matter, anybody. No, I'll give you a perfect example of this, how I explained it recently. So the whole thing with net neutrality. And, yeah, great example. Okay, so here's the thing. The FCC says we don't have the power to do this uh, back in the day. And then Obama says, well, I think you do, and you should vote on it. 
<laughs> and then they vote on it and say, you know what, we yeah, do have the power to do this, right? Yeah. And, and then and then when and then you know Trump comes in, so you change the bureaucrat, you change the system at the executive branch, and they get to decide how they execute the law, but they don't get to decide what the law is or what power they have. They voted the power away from themselves, which I'm which okay is, with that, but it shows in it shows the power, it shows the flaw in the ointment as it is, right? Exactly. And, and then everybody loses their minds. But my, my analogy with this is it would be like a county sheriff realizes that there's stray dogs everywhere. And he decides, you know, we should have a three-dog rule. People should only be able to have three dogs. We wouldn't have all these stray dogs around. So he goes to the, the, the county board and says, I want this to be the county you know, law, regulation, code, whatever, that exists in that county's form of government. And, and the county board or uh, county uh, council or whatever says, you know what, um, that's fine, sheriff, but what you need to do is get your ass out there and enforce the law we have about all these stray dogs, get animal control involved. The people that have the dogs on their property are not the problem. And he says, well, you know, I just don't agree with you, so I'm going to get my deputies together. And we're going to vote on whether or not we should be able to cite people for having three more dogs. And they all take a vote, and then he goes out and starts citing people for having more than three dogs. And then he, then well, the, the media, the, when they ask him, they're like, oh, yeah, you're exercising this control. And he says, well, our deputies voted on it. Exactly. We've, like, we've investigated ourselves and determined we're doing nothing wrong. <laughs> and, and that, when the executive begins to give itself power... Or bo- that or is blur, that or is the breach that line between correct the ability to make the policy to make the decision versus the enforcement of that decision and that concept came from Montesquieu in a book called The Spirit of Laws and and the whole concept is is if you're going to have any human government at all you're going to distribute your authority to control any of your future behavior to another human being separate the ability to make the law, the rule, the decision, from the ability to enforce the decision because oppression seems to be sown at that moment, at that exact instant between let's make the decision to to have this interview and then the ability to execute this decision to have this interview in the human relationship realm. And some, for some reason, even in my own experience, that seems to be where this oppression weed starts to grow, right at that point where that line, that boundary gets blurred. I want to give you a practical example in the United States of how that line is being blurred. So you mentioned the county sheriff, and in Delaware, they have three counties, and so they have three sheriffs. Well, the legislature made a law to strip all three sheriffs of their law enforcement authority. So now the sheriffs in Delaware have no law enforcement authority. They're only jailers. So then the question is, well, then who has the authority to pull you over? Who has the authority to, to make you stop speeding, for example? That's an important question because if you've taken it away from the sheriff, well, then who has it? Who has the authority now? Okay, so in Delaware now, it is the state highway patrol that now has the authority to do all of the pulling over and arresting you and, and, and you know, home invading you in the middle of the night, you know, when you get swatted for, for whatever reason, right? So why, why does the state 
Highway Patrol now have that authority. In, in most other states, it's the county that will pull you over on a county road or in, in, in some cases even on a state road. Well, we, start, we bring in this concept of civil asset forfeiture. Are you familiar with that? Absolutely. Okay, so that's I'm, I'm going to cut this short. That's where it ends right there. It's, it, it comes back down to whoever makes the stop can then exercise that additional policy, okay, that's not reined in by the state legislature of Delaware, and, and use it to build the budget, the, the bottom line for the highway patrol in Delaware. Now, if we go all the way to St. Charles County, Missouri, the people, Jack, the people were duped because of Ferguson. They were duped into completely eliminating their sheriff. They have no sheriff in St. Charles hmm. County, Missouri. Now, the question would be, wait a minute, why, why would I want to get rid of my sheriff? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's called a form of government, the charter form of government. They now have what's called a county police chief. Well, the county police chief, who does the county police chief work for now? The sheriff <laughs> was elected by the people. Sure, by the sure. People. Okay, what about the county police chief? not elected by the people, not chosen by the people, is now controlled by the county commission of St. Charles County. So no matter what that county police chief does, no matter how much you say to him, you work for me, <laughs> the bottom line is, no, he doesn't. He works for the legislative branch. And that is the thing that John Adams warned the founders when they were creating our structure, our social structure, don't allow the executive to legislative boundary be blurred like that. And I have a hundred more examples, not only at the county level, but at the school level, the city level, the state level, the federal level. It's this more than this concept of do we or do we not need government, that for some reason government takes place. Then what is the governance structure going to do to limit or confine the growth of weeds I call it the weed of oppression in my life. And, and that is what the founders were attempting to answer. And I think, I think for us, the beauty, Jack, is the 21st century, we have the opportunity to be a part of that discovery in our lifetimes uh, of, so, defining, so can you, of defining. So can you give us some examples of how the Center for Self-Government's classes, because that's what you guys, you train people, yes. have brought about change? Huh. Okay. So I want to go back to Idaho real quick, the, the, what I was describing earlier. So these six students, um, in, in, our, in our structure of government, most people, like if I were to ask you, how long do judges in the United States get to sit in their seat? What would you say? In many instances for the rest of their lives. Okay. But our Constitution, the, the airplane manual, like the, you know, the airplane <laughs> manual or the car manual, the Constitution literally states, the judges in the federal system, at the federal level, sit in their seats or hold their office on term of good behavior. And so in our training program, we ask the question, what is bad behavior? And who defines bad? <laughs> what, is, what is bad? <laughs> right? Because they hold it for good. Well, then who, what's bad and who defines it? And so when you analyze the system, when you discover how the system works, it's the House of Representatives in Congress that defines bad. So I asked the trainees in Idaho, uh, and I've asked it all across the country, actually, 
but in Idaho specifically, they, they you should have seen their heads explode when they realized this. I'm like, you think they sit in there for good for lifetime, but the system actually says they sit in there for good behavior. Now that we've defined who defines bad, I asked them the, a very simple question. What is your relationship with your House of Representatives? And they have two of them in Idaho. What's your relationship with them? And their answer is zero. I have none. I said, that's because you don't know the system and you don't realize that maintenance of the system is part of your responsibility if you want social self-governance. They got it. So they immediately crafted strategy because these were level four, level five at the time. And they started organizing people to just simply ask this guy named Raul Labrador. Raul Labrador is a um, congressman, and he's running for governor in Idaho right now. And he wants to be president of the United States, which is, you know, it's admirable. He's, he's got an agenda, and he's got a, he, he wants to do things. However, the question for Raul is, hey, Raul, we really hope you become governor. How can I help? No, the question is, Raul, your job as a congressman is to define bad. In the case of um, uh, Oregon, there was a case in Oregon that happened last year where this judge literally told the defendants in the courtroom, you are not allowed to read the Constitution of the United States in this courtroom. So the what? question to Raul Labrador is, <laughs> is that bad behavior? Is that bad behavior or is that good behavior? Raul was re refusing at the beginning to answer that question. Well, they kept pressuring him because now you got to understand his doggy biscuit, because we all want doggy biscuits, right? We all want our stuff. Yeah. Yeah. His doggy biscuit is president of the United States. That's what he wants. And he's got to go through the governor's office in order to get there. Now, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I understand how human nature works. And in this case, our students understood his human nature, and they simply were asking a very important system question. Raul, as a pilot... Are you willing to define the word bad? No, no. Even he stomped out of one of the town hall meetings. He stomped out of there. He was so angry <laughs> because they kept asking this question. They weren't asking him the right question, which is, how can we help you get elected? Does it make sense? No, it okay. makes perfect sense. So now Raul is put into this position. If I want to be president, I have to go to the governor. If I want to be governor, I better start defining the word bad. Well, it resulted in something epic. It's just epic. And I'm doing a documentary on this, this entire story to try to capture this amazing potential that we have as human beings. Okay. So they, they got him to finally start defining the word bad. And he ended up on a two-hour phone call because he's a member of the Judiciary Committee in, in Washington, D.C. He ended up on a two-hour phone call with the Attorney General Sessions uh, from the Department of Justice and the Executive Branch. So now realize, you have the Legislative Branch and the Executive Branch of the federal government meeting together on a phone call, and the question is, is their behavior good or bad? For two hours, <laughs> Jack, for two hours. That's historic. It's historic, and it should be normal. It should be normal. And, of course, I'm excited because I'm like, it's possible. You know what I mean? It's possible. And so... The, the result was within 72 hours, the Attorney General of the United States called his district attorney in, in, a, in a separate but related case in Nevada and literally um, tells his district attorneys, you will offer the, what's called the Tier 2 defendants, uh, you will offer them a plea deal. And, and I'll just tell you real quick, these two guys had their guns pointed at federal officers on April 12, 2014, 
in relationship to this matter of boundaries, and they got off with a traffic ticket. A traffic ticket, okay? In, yeah. in the United States, when you point your gun at a federal agent, minimum 10 to 15 years. Minimum. Sure. These guys got a traffic ticket, Jack. That's huge. Now, is this the Bundy thing? Is that what this is? It's the Bundy, Oregon, Lavoie Finicum thing. It's that whole thing. And so, so Raul Labrador, congressman, through these unknown six people who understood the system rather than their issue, they understood the system, they changed the destiny of these men who were in prison. Phenomenal. And it's resulted in, in more epic stuff. Um, January 8th, the case against the Bundys epically, epically dropped because of the discovery of prosecutorial misconduct, withholding of evidence. And this all started way back with those six people. And the attorney general called for an investigation into their misconduct. He replaced the district attorney. And even, even we're hearing rumors today, even hearing rumors this morning, there is a possibility that a pardon might be in, the, in these men's future. I can't tell you how epic that is. And that's why I'm doing the documentary, because how do I tell you four years, the four years of these oh, men's lives? I, don't, I just don't know how to do you it in, in this short so, of time. So, I mean, you're, you, you're, you're doing a Kickstarter right now? Is that you? Yes. Yeah, we're on Kickstarter. That's great, because I, I, I just gave you 100 bucks, and at least you're the right person. Whoa, then. Okay. Thanks, Jack. That's Thanks the, so much. Uh, that's what I was doing this morning when we had to start a little bit late and trying to square that away because it – Kickstarter said I gave $250 to some clown I didn't know who it was, and I was making sure I didn't actually do that. But it's, it's, it's called Dead Man Talking, right? Yeah, Lavoy. Lavoy, Dead Man Talking. Lavoy Finicum, and i got to control my emotions here, okay, because um, um, he wasn't there to be acquitted in Oregon last year in that federal court where the judge says you can't read the Constitution in this courtroom. He wasn't there on January 8th to celebrate with these men who stood their ground and were able to expose and bring light not only to how the corruption, not just the negative stuff, but even how our system is supposed to work. And so Lavoy Dead Man Talking is part two of our three-part series called Governed v. Governing. It starts with the Bundy standoff in part one. I, I happened to be there that day and filmed the whole thing. And then um, I came into contact with the Finnicum family, uh, Jeanette Finnicum, Lavoie Finnicum's widow, uh, at the six-month anniversary last year. They invited me to speak at his memorial, and I'm like, why are you guys calling me? I, I was kind of against these guys taking over the refuge for political strategy reasons. And um, anyway, I spoke at his, his thing, and the first words I said, and your listeners are going to go, What? I said, I love the federal government. I love our government. And I kept, I, for like eight minutes, I love this and I love that about our government. And people started booing me and hissing me. One guy got up and stomped out of the room. But Jeanette and Tara, his oldest daughter, Tara, they were weeping because my speech was just his quotes. And he kept saying, I'm not anti-government. I'm for the proper role of government freedom and liberty for all human beings, and our government was designed for that. Anyway, uh, and I realized that day the people in that room just wanted a martyr, and they didn't even know the man. And so the purpose of part two, Lavoie Dead Man Talking, is to give him his day in court 
because we have all of his video recordings and so much more. It's to allow him to have his 90 minutes in court to testify. Why did I, why did I go to Bunkerville in 2014? Why did I go to Oregon in 2016? Why did I step out of that truck in a hail of bullets on January 26th? We're coming up on the two-year anniversary in just a couple weeks. Why did I step out of that truck? And his famous quote, it matters how you stand. And I think it's, I think it's so important to, to document this four-year journey that these men have been on in their families and to, to archive it, to tell it, not only to show the corruption, Jack, but really to give hope for the future. We can influence our social self-governance. It is possible we just have to learn the system. We build relationships with human beings, not with a beast called government. So how do people get involved, and what exactly do you guys do when people get involved with your organization? How does that all function? So we teach um, three different kinds of, of, of classes. We teach what's called foundational civics, uh, state constitution, regional government, and city government. Those are all recorded, and you can go to our website, centerforselfgovernance.com. All they got to do is click the e-learning button. Highly recommend you learn your state constitution. It's critical. Um, there's a reason why it's bigger than the U.S. Constitution. Too much to go into now. Um, the second thing is we teach applied civics. How do I do this? How do I advance my political influence? And that's our core training program. It's a training program, not just knowledge. It's how do I actually... How do I change the destiny of those men in that prison without physically being there, <laughs> without protesting outside? What can I do um, to, 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 to actually influence the destiny of the airplane uh, and the integrity of the airplane and the turbulence of the airplane? And then we teach uh, a third set of classes, which are related to relationships. Human relationships are just – we can't get away from it. I, I can't, I, it's just impossible to be Tom Hanks on Castaway Island – we go nuts. We want human contact. We, we crave it. We need it. So we teach um, communication skills, networking skills, relationship building, how to build and grow credibility and influence. Um, and those are, those are, that's our main mission. We want to help and empower individuals and communities to stabilize the human relations, uh, social self-governance uh, for themselves. Very cool. And, and how can people get in touch with you and, and get involved? Um, so we're on Facebook, uh, and uh, we're also on another organization that looks like Facebook. It's called Minds, M-I-N-D-S.com, Minds.com, and Facebook.com, Center for Self-Governance. You just type it in. You can follow us there. We also have our website, a lot of information. There's going to be a lot of changes this year so we can get more people engaged and interactive, uh, Center for Self-Governance. Dot com. It's not Center for Self-Government. It's Center for Self-Governance because it's active. <laughs> it's day-to-day. -day. It's like brushing your teeth. It's something you're supposed to do on a daily basis. Um, they can also um, – well, those are the three main things. So our website, centerforselfgovernance.com, Facebook, and mine. We're also on Twitter, Snapchat. <laughs> um, we're going to be doing a live premieres of Lavoy Dead Man talking around the country. Uh, that's not a – yet, but if any of your listeners want to uh, participate and make that happen, we're going to bypass Hollywood. <laughs> we're going to bypass the mainstream media, 
and we're going to come directly to your home or directly to a venue near you, and you can come and see and meet Jeanette face-to-face and um, be a part of this movement. I can't wait to see what they're going to do with their freedom now. I think they're going to call for judicial reform, and they're going to turn what's been a negative experience for these 19-plus men in the Bundy, Oregon, et cetera, uh, standoffs and turn it into a positive for the future. Yeah, I, 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 the fact that you would have a judge tell anyone they can't read the Constitution is, you want to talk about what is bad. Right. Uh, and you yeah, know, beautiful, like, beautiful uh, Jack, is on January 8th, as the judge, Judge Navarro, there's so much to Judge Navarro in the, in the case that just wrapped up in Nevada yes, the day before yesterday. She worked for Rory Reed, uh, Harry Reed's uh, son is a county commissioner, and related to land deals, and China was involved, et cetera, et cetera. And anyway, so she was made the head judge of this federal court system in this area of, of Las Vegas and, and bypassed all these senior judges, which made them all really mad, right? But in the case at the beginning, she was just bad. I'll just say the word. I'm just going to use the word bad, okay? Yeah. Bad. Well, I can't, believe, I can't tell you how epic it was for her to say in the courtroom, your constitutional rights were violated by this prosecutorial misconduct. That's epic. Yeah. And I think she knows. Yeah. I think they know now, the federal judges in the United States know, because of what happened with Raul Labrador and the definition of bad, I think they understand now that the Congress is beginning to awaken to their authority that we gave them to define the word bad. Well, one of the biggest problems we have is not the overuse of authority, but the abdication of authority. Because authority also is responsibility. Right. So when you have authority over something, then you have a responsibility to use that authority wisely and to use it as charged. So you you don't get to decide, well, I'll just let somebody else do that. Like, you know, the power over the currency, you know, constitutionally directed at. I don't want to go down it because we'll be on for another hour. We got to wrap up here. (laughs) But I mean, that's exactly what happens when one. When one group that is supposed to be responsible for something chooses to not be responsible for it, there's only two things that can happen. One, it goes into utter decay because nobody does it. Or somebody else who's power-hungry accepts that responsibility into that vacuum and becomes dictatorial with it. That's because the the responsible party is not doing it. The person doing it doesn't have the authority to do it. But since the responsible party is not doing it, there's no check on that balance. And that's it's just wide open. Yeah, so you're, you're, anyway, I've got you're hitting go it ahead. on my nose. I, I've got links to your website in the show notes. I'll make sure I link to your social media stuff as well. Appreciate I that. have a link to your uh, Kickstarter on uh, on on uh, the, uh, the, the 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 dead man talking uh, one again. I, I kicked a hundred bucks, and I think that would be well worth supporting. I put that out on my social media today. Thank you. I think I appreciate um, that so much, Jack. Thank you. Because it is about getting people to understand, I think. And I think one of the big things is people have been disempowered because they don't know what they can do. But the other thing is they've been conditioned to believe that if the government says somebody is bad, then somebody's bad. Yeah. Which is like the most asinine, most unpatriotic stance, and people think it's patriotic. They wave their flag while they say shit like that. And it's like, I, I, I really don't think you understand how this is supposed to work. I, I want to change. I want to change that phrase that says "sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me." I'm sorry. When when Operation Vigilant Eagle from the FBI came out in April of 2010, 
the names that they applied to people like me, a veteran like you, to, to people who believed in the Constitution or the rule of law or freedom and liberty or, or any of those types of things, we were immediately put into a category of, of watch list as well as domestic terrorists. Absolutely. And I've been watching them change those names over the last five years. And right now, it's our conversation in, 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 in the culture that they've created internally at the federal level within the FBI, DOJ, BLM, et cetera, is that people like you and I having this conversation is considered to be a domestic terrorist threat. And so I'm really hoping that the Attorney General of the United States, based on what's happened in Nevada and Oregon with the case related to the Bundys and LaVoy Finicum, they will take a serious look at their internal culture and that they will review Operation Vigilant Eagles uh, threat assessment related to Americans in the United States and that they will reverse course and they will allow us to be free once again. Yeah, and I think the one thing we have that I don't think we've ever had at this level in the history of mankind is the ability to be heard. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? I, I'm telling you. I, 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 I could not run the business that I run today if I tried to start it in 1986. Alternative media... I was okay. Okay, I got to tell you this real quick story. So I'm there at the Las Vegas Federal Court building as they were making the decision. And we got the rumors came down that they were dismissing the whole thing, that she was letting the whole thing go. They're completely free, never again to be tried for this. Um, I'm watching the media and I'm watching the alternative media, and it was it was like I don't know how to describe it. They were all by themselves. They, they had been isolated and marginalized, and everybody was surrounding the alternative media people. And then when Cliven Bundy, the man who was the, kind of the beginning of this whole thing, when he walks out of the federal building, the media did not ask him a single question. And I'm standing there with my microphone because we're doing a documentary about this, and I'm like, my first thought in my head, Jack, was, is, am I authorized to ask a question? You know what I mean? I was because I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to do. I'm not a professional. And so I like I just stuck my microphone right at Mr. Bundy and I said, first question. The first thing he says when he comes out of the federal building, I realized at that at that moment, and, and they can look at it, if they want to watch it, they can watch it on Facebook and see it for themselves. But my point is, I realized at that moment, alternative media, it, 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 there's a revolution coming in the media industry. And um, I think you're at the forefront of it. I think what I saw there yes, uh, day before yesterday, and there's an opportunity for us um, to really kind of hone in on what you said, and that is um, th this has really given us an opportunity to be heard, um, to tell the truth, and to really make change in our society. Awesome, man. Well, hey, I appreciate you being with us today. Folks, the website is centerforselfgovernance.com. I'll have links to that, social media stuff for uh, Mark, and uh, to their Kickstarter in the show notes today for our episode today. And uh, with that, Mark, man, thanks for being with us. Hey, I really enjoyed uh, getting to meet you, Jack, and uh, uh, survival. <laughs> we're going to survive, and we're going to grow liberty and freedom in the 21st century. Thanks, man. Well, good interview, great guy, and great mission, and some great success stories. Again, you can learn more at the centerforselfgovernance.com. Anyway, guys, hey, we've wrapped up another episode. If you like this show, the work that we do, and you want to help support us, there's a really easy way to do that. 
Online shopping where? tspass.com. What I mean is you're going to buy something online. Before you go buy something online, no matter what it is, go to tspaz.com and see if we can help you out with it there, or go through tspaz.com when you do your shopping. Either way, you'll help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. You can see all of our Amazon reviews. I've got an item I'm bringing back around for you today made by a company called eTech City. I love eTech City because they make a lot of the same crap everybody else does, but theirs is a little bit better and their support is a hell of a lot better. The beauty, the thing with electronics, right? If something breaks, you can't be like, oh, I can't believe it broke. Electronics, you know, some portion, when you make millions of them, will break. You want a company that'll say, hey, we're sorry it broke, here's a new one. That's what eTech City does. Or if you can't figure it out, they go, here's how you do that with good support. eTech City brings you all of that. The product I have for you today, though, I mean, you, you really would have trouble. If you couldn't figure out how to work it, you probably couldn't use the information it gives you. It is a laser grip digital laser temperature gun. Well, there's a little gun, and you point it, it makes a little red dot, you put that red dot somewhere, it tells you what the temperature is. And you can set it to centigrade or Fahrenheit, and it, it's really accurate. I don't know if it's accurate within like one and a half degrees or something like that, but it's close because I have very accurate thermometers on my aquarium, for instance, and when I shoot the water temperature there, I'm usually within one degree of what the aquarium thermometer says. I've used it for a lot of things lately, like when I put heat tape on my pipes so they wouldn't freeze and break during the recent freeze that we had. When it got below a certain temperature, I went out there and shot the little heat tape thing and saw that the temperature was higher than the surrounding temperature, knowing it was on and actually working. That's an example. We can test things like what the temperature of a frying pan is before we drop something into it. Uh, we can look for microclimates on our property when we're trying to plant something that needs to be a little bit cooler or a little bit warmer than our zone typically has. There's just so much you can do with this. How about this? Is my air conditioning working the way it's supposed to be? Pointed at the vent, you see the temperature of the air that's coming out of the vent. Or is same with heat this time of year, right? Just tons of stuff you can do with it. They're not much money. They're very cool, and they probably belong in every home in America. It's one of those things like you won't realize how valuable it is until you have it. Here's my here's the other thing it does. Basically it's a laser pointer, right? Just it's a laser pointer that tells you the temperature. So I, I, I tease my cat with it and I get the ducks to chase a little red dot. They try to eat it. And the chickens, the little baby chickens try to eat it. But the rooster, the rooster that somebody threw over our fence, he's the only rooster here and he's got no chickens because the chickens we have are the little bantams living in the aviary. He's terrified of it. All the other birds chase it. You show it, he runs away, and I chase him with it. And it gives me temperatures. It's a multifaceted object. By the way, I put out a video today. You want to check our YouTube channel. Our little bantam chickens, I gave them like six duck eggs. Apparently only one was fertile, but they have hatched a baby duck. I got three chicken mamas taking care of one baby duck. It's pretty damn cool. If it doesn't make your day, I don't know what will. Anyway, that brings us to our Song of the Day. Song of the Day is by an artist I'm not a huge fan of. I like some of his stuff. I don't dislike him, but I'm not like, I'm a fan. But he's got some good music. And his, his name is Randy Travis. Been around forever. I remember this guy making music when I was in, like, junior high and grade school. That's how long Randy's been around. This song, I think, is from 1990, if I remember right, when I was reading all the stuff John sends me on these songs. But it's called Heroes and Friends. And it's basically that in this world, there's, there, there's two groups that will never let you down. You, your heroes and your friends. And your heroes will show you what you are really capable of and what you can really do. And your friends won't turn away from you. And if they do, they're not your friends. And people say, well, what about my wife? I hope your wife your, or your husband is your friend. 
Hope your children are your friends. Hope your family are your friends. Because I'll tell you something that I know from personal experience. Blood alone won't prevent somebody from turning away from you. A person that's got honor and it feels duty-bound by their friendship and their relationship with you is the one that won't turn away from you. Unless you've done something really, really wrong where they can't stand with you. I do actually take exception to this song a little bit, though. Your heroes will never let you down. Maybe if they're dead. And then only if you don't learn things about them maybe that you didn't know. See, the truth about all heroes is, in the end, they're not heroes. They're just humans. They're humans that have done something that you particularly have immense respect for, that you wish you could emulate and be like. That's that's what hero, hero, heroes are to the individual. We can talk about heroic actions, but that's not... That's not really what this song is. It's not about that kind of hero. It's not necessarily somebody that ran into a burning building, though maybe it is. It's really about the person that you choose to look to and say, I want to be like that. And the reason that heroes can let you down is we have a, a tendency in our society to elevate people to unreasonable levels so that one day when we hear about a flaw or a mistake or a failing, then that hero falls. And it seems in our society of just bullshit fake news media, the only thing that this society seems to crave more than building someone up is tearing them down. But I guess instead of being just heroes as we think of it, just as I said, if, they're, if, they, if they let you down, they're not your real friends. If, they, if they, you need them there for you and they won't be there for you, they won't be your real friends. If you actually understand why you've made someone out to be one of your heroes, somebody that you want to be like, when you learn something flawed about them, instead of saying, well, they're not my hero anymore, knowing the flaws in yourself more intimately than anyone else possibly could, and knowing that we are all extremely flawed, many instances we choose to retain that view of that individual and strive to be like the parts of them that made us consider them a hero in the first place. Those are my thoughts on this one. Great selection by John Adam. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I ain't lived forever, but I've lived enough. And I've learned to be gentle and I've learned to be tough. I found only two things that last till the end. One is your heroes, the other's your friends. Your heroes will help you find good in yourself. Your friends won't forsake you for somebody else. They'll both stand beside you through thick and through thin. And that's how it goes with heroes and I grew up with cowboys I watched on TV My friends and I sometimes pretended to be Years have gone by, but now and again My heart rides the range with my heroes and friends Your heroes will help you find good in 
yourself Your friends won't forsake you for somebody else They'll both stand beside you through thick and through thin And that's how it goes with heroes and friends Dear heroes will help you find good in yourself Your friends won't forsake you 